Hey, listeners, if you are thinking about divorce and concerned about your children, please go to my online parenting plan course. It will help you plan how you're going to parent through divorce and beyond. And I promise you, it will keep conflicts from erupting in the future while keeping you centered on your children. Check it out at lisakoski.com. Welcome to Doing Divorce Different. Join family law attorney turned mediator, Lisa Koski, for candid conversations on how to alleviate the fear of divorce and how to heal through empowerment. Now your host, Lisa Koski. Listeners, I am so thrilled that you are here today. I think this may be one of my favorite episodes ever, and I have the most outstanding guest. His name is Dr. Adam Woods, and he's a psychiatrist in Iowa City, and he has five steps to well-being that are going to change your life. They've changed mine. They've changed people that I love, and so I'm thrilled to be able to share this with you. Here's the deal. He's entertaining and talkative. So we're doing this in two sections. So today we're going to get to know Dr. Adam Woods, and he's going to talk a little bit about how he came to be who he is and came to his beliefs. And we're going to hear the number one thing that he recommends for your well-being. Tune in next week to learn two through five. So stay tuned. You're going to love it. Welcome to Doing Divorce Different. Listeners, I am so thrilled. I must tell you, my guest today doesn't know this, but actually was kind of an answer to my prayers, which is interesting. So I have Dr. Adam Woods with me, and he's a family psychiatrist. We can talk more about that later. But what got me connected to Dr. Adam is I have someone I'm really close to who was looking for some help and happened to just find you, I don't even know, like online, went to you, met with you, and it has changed this person's life. And this person rattled off the five steps to well-being. And it is so in line with me and my life and what I want from my clients and my listeners that I just feel like I can't tell you it's a privilege to have you here. So I was so excited that you were going to be on the podcast. And then I asked for your bio and I'm like, oh my gosh, we could talk about your life, Dr. Adam. I mean, we could talk about that probably for a full episode. We don't know if this is going to be one or two episodes. It depends on how long it is. But We're going to start out where I want to get to know Dr. Adam a little bit better because he has a really interesting story about how he landed in doing what he's doing. Then we're going to talk about the five steps, the process to well-being. And then if we have time in this episode or for the one following, we're going to talk specifically about maybe some divorce tips that Dr. Adam can share with us. So welcome, Dr. Adam. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite an intro. I hope I can live up to it. (laughs) I think Joe Rogan's going to be calling you after he hears all the interesting things in your life. Honest to God. That'd be great. Uh, Sam Harris, too. I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. All right. Well, I'm thankful that you're here. And I just, that was so interesting to me as I'm looking, for one thing, anytime anyone's a medical doctor, I want to fall down and like, thank you. My daughter is one. And what you go through to become a doctor is so grueling and takes such dedication that now when I see, I mean, it was always service people and now it's service people and doctors. I'm always thanking that they put the time in. 
So that's a huge deal. But you didn't go there right away. Can no. you just share your story and your journey with the listeners? Yeah. So not to bore people to death, I'll try to get to it. And I'm not good at doing that. But I was born in a small Iowa town with only about 4,000 people. But we moved to the big city of Des Moines, the capital, when I was about 10. And uh, I was a very awkward child. I had a fairly pronounced stammer. And if you get me in a position where I'm nervous, I'll still stammer quite a bit. But uh, I got involved in singing, which was sort of a big thing for me. And that kind of led me to opportunities where I was doing theater. And my mother recognized my, um, my passion for that. And I was raised by a single mother who I think was, you know, kind of looking for outlets for her son, uh, where sports weren't a big thing for her and what were ways we could connect with things. So I started going to see whether it was the touring productions at the Civic Center in Des Moines or the local community theater. And I just fell in love with theater. So after high school, I actually thought about being a doctor in high school. You mentioned the grueling mm -hmm. thing that we go through. I thought about being a doctor in high school, but thought that I was too dumb because all of the doctors I'd ever met, especially in that small town, they were treated like gods. And I mm -hmm. thought you had to be a genius to be a doctor. That'll come back in my story. But I decided to go to nearby Drake University and to major in theater. And I majored in acting and playwriting. And I got to spend a semester uh, with the National Theater Conservatory in Connecticut. We spent time studying with the Royal Shakespeare Company in England. And then after that semester, I actually went to New York that summer and wound up getting a bunch of professional jobs. And I went, I spent nearly a year on a cruise ship as lead singer and was all over the world. This is before 9-11. I was 21. I turned 22 on the cruise ship. Wow. So a wonderful time for a young man in his formative years to experience all these different languages and religions. And I always say to people, I could lie and say I was looking to meet people. I was looking to meet girls, but in the different countries <laughs> where there were girls my age, there were guys my age. And so I made friends all over the planet. Right. And I didn't know that as an example, I mentioned 9-11, that America was hated. Like I didn't know that. So I've been sheltered and so forth, but it really opened my eyes to different philosophies and so forth. So I got a few more acting jobs and decided, uh, I was actually on tour in Texas when I realized that you know theater was probably not going to be my vocation. It was my passion. It was my avocation. But I wasn't going to do it sort of full time. And I'd really set out to do what I wanted to do, which honestly was proof to my parents. I could be a professional actor and pay the bills. I'd done that. And, uh, and so I uh, started thinking about what are other careers that might sort of play to my strengths. And when I was on tour in Texas, we were in a different town every single week. And back then, I was fairly involved in the Presbyterian Church, which is the church where I was raised. And almost no, none of these churches had pastors. And I started thinking about it. And I thought, you know, what are the skills it takes to be a good parish pastor? You have to be able to speak in front of people, sing in front of people, walk into a room where you don't know anyone, like someone's home or a hospital room and talk to people. And I thought, these are all the things that I'm good at doing. And so uh, I got a full ride to Princeton, which uh, is was founded by the Presbyterians uh, long ago. And so I thought this is the next move. So I finished my undergraduate degree and I went off to Princeton and I actually got to be involved in theater a lot when I was in Princeton, both the, the university theater and then New York is a short train ride away. And so that was great. But I started doing my basic seminary studies in from what's called a Master's of Divinity. That's the basic degree that most ministers have. And um, I joined the Air Force my first year of seminary because my grandfather, who was more like my dad, because my dad had left when I was really young, 
Uh, we can talk about that. My experience I with know, that's as, interesting. as a child, right? My grandfather had been in World War II. And so the Air Force and actually all the military services have this really cool program, at least they used to, where if you want to be a chaplain, you can go and train and they'll pay you and you do all this stuff, but you're not required to sign a contract that will then uh, commit you to four years or six years or something like that. So I went off and did this Air Force chaplain training and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And the first summer, uh, I wound up at the base in Omaha, which is you know close to my family, yeah. and I made a lot of very powerful friends. And that's important because it plays into the next part of my life. If you ever watch the movie A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson says at one point to Tom Cruise, I don't want money, I don't want medals. And so that's actually really true in the Air Force and in any military service. What you want are favors. You want somebody with a lot of power owing you a favor. The best would be the president, and the second would be the vice president and so forth. Well, I had a four-star general owed me a favor because once I got to that base, I was playing the piano and singing and doing all this stuff. And it was actually his wife that befriended me and uh, had me play the piano and sing when they would entertain senators and congressmen. And Omaha is a very powerful base. For those of you who don't know, that's where Bush was taken on 9-11. So anyway, um, I had these very powerful friends. So my second year after seminary, which is three years, I uh, asked to go into a hospital chaplain training program. I didn't really think I was going to be a hospital chaplain. It was very prestigious. And because I had these really powerful friends, I got in right away. Whereas people had to, you know, I mean, I was a good candidate anyway, to be honest. Right. So I got sent off to the Seattle area. And uh, for those of you that don't know this, in 1947, the Air Force came out of the Army. So if you ever hear someone in World War II say they were in the Air Force, they were in the Army Air Corps. And then the Air Force broke off in 1947. So the mm -hmm. Army still does a lot of stuff with the Air Force. We train with them and really work with them a lot. So anyway, I got sent to this Army base in Tacoma, Washington, Madigan Army Medical Center at Fort Lewis. And I found myself working in this hospital. And because I was living on the West Coast, my girlfriend at the time was in Baltimore, and I didn't have much else to do. Plus, I'm kind of a workaholic. I would volunteer for extra duty in the hospital. And I was in the ER and the post-surgical units. And I just loved it. I loved working in medicine. What I noticed very quickly was the really good doctors were doing my job. They were sitting with the families, being present, being very spiritual, but not proselytizing, being comforting. And so, and then the very bad doctors would just come in the room and just wreck the place. So I would be in charge of cleaning up after those people, you know, and I, I won't tell my favorite story, but there was a story in the ER that was just awful of what I saw the physician do. And so I was walking all around the hospital and uh, people would ask me about their diagnoses. They'd say, oh, you know, Lieutenant, what do you think about this, the doctor said this about the cancer or the whatever with the heart disease. I didn't know anything. You know, I had never gone to that kind of school. And so I, um, and also when you're a chaplain and people come to the ER seeing angels or hearing the voice of God or something like that, they tend to call you. And so I knew all these psychiatry residents. I didn't know what a resident was. I just knew they were doctors, but I had all their phone numbers on my cell phone. And I, a lot of times I'd call them and go, I think this is one of yours and not one of mine. And so I was raised by mental health care workers, not doctors. My parents actually don't like psychiatrists. It's kind of funny. <laughs> but, um, I went back to Princeton and I finished my senior year with the idea that I would just go and be a pastor or a chaplain or something like that. And I just couldn't shake the feeling that I wanted to be a doctor and that I really wanted to pursue medicine. I was so inspired. And that particular base, we're talking about the early 2000s. 
So Fort Lewis, Washington is a big ranger base, three big ranger battalions there, and they took heavy losses during shock and awe. In fact, the first chaplain killed since the Civil War was killed at that base, and I happened to be there. So it was a very interesting time, because unlike Vietnam veterans who got, we hate the war and we hate you, your baby killers and so forth, we, the veterans of the Operation Iraqi Freedom, we got, we hate this war, but we love you and thank right. you for what you're doing. So I felt very supported and so forth. But remember, I thought doctors were geniuses and I thought mm -hmm. you had to be really, really smart to go to med school. And then I met all these residents working at that army hospital and I realized that they weren't geniuses. They were smart, but what they were was hard workers. Mm -hmm. I'm a hard worker. So in seminary, I had to take Greek and Hebrew and Latin and study hard is something I know how to do. All right. So I started talking to some other people that I knew, um, some doctors, my girlfriend at the time who was getting her PhD at Johns Hopkins, and she knew a bunch of doctors. And I thought I was 26 and I thought I was too old. You know, it's the folly of youth, right? I really expected everybody in my life to say, you're insane. You know, you're too old. I've got your master's degree. Why in the world would you want to do that? And almost everybody in my life was like, that's a great idea. You should totally do that. What a fantastic idea. So I had to go back to undergrad and do some post-baccalaureate work. And I take chemistry one, biology one, physics one. In fact, I did the math. The first day I was sitting back at Drake, my undergraduate school, taking chemistry one, I did the math. The, the day I was a real freshman, the rest of those kids around me were starting fifth grade. So oh that's, my God. that's how old I felt. But I studied my butt off and um, I got a really, really good MCAT score and was the first student ever in the history of Drake to get accepted to Duke, which was my top choice for medical school. And off I went to Duke and I did four years at Duke and um, had to admit to myself, I swore I wouldn't be a psychiatrist. I swore I wouldn't be a psychiatrist because my parents thought I'd be a psychiatrist. And that girlfriend's dad, who was a doctor, swore I'd be a psychiatrist. And uh, my first rotation was psychiatry and I loved it. Yeah. Thought, oh man, I love this. And then you know, I, when I did my pediatrics rotation, I loved that too. And I thought, oh, good, I'll be a pediatrician. That way I don't have to be a psychiatrist. And so I did a pediatric psychiatry rotation. That was it. I never looked back. So I, uh, I came back to Iowa 10 years ago. This last June, I moved to the Iowa City area, fully intending on um, going back to North Carolina uh, once I got my residency done. And wouldn't you know it, I met a girl and we got married and had a baby. And uh, now, like uh, many generations of Woodses before me, I'll probably die in this state. Um, and and I, I'm OK with that. I'm OK with that. Um, and I will say just to be uh, to bring it back to your listeners during the time I was in med school, I actually was married and uh, and got divorced. So that I didn't very, know that. Oh. that that very much will inform the second part of the conversation that we have. Uh, in terms of my own experience. So not only a child of divorce, I myself am divorced. My current wife was uh, was divorced once as well. So it actually was one of the conversations that bonded us in the beginning. Mm -hmm. We both kind of been down this path. But anyway, uh, so I now live in the uh, Iowa City, Iowa area. It's one of those places where that you've got three or four little towns that are really close together. So technically, I live in Coralville. My office is in North Liberty, but nobody knows where those are. Um, Iowa City is where the University of Iowa is. Yeah. And so I've been here for 10 years. And honestly, I don't think I'll ever leave. I love the Iowa City, Iowa area. I'm close enough to Des Moines. My mother is still there and she can come and see your granddaughter and um, all that. But I like this town. It's fantastic. So that's the, I told you it wouldn't be short. That's my circuitous story that got me here. It's so, so good. And I'm so thankful that you followed your passion because look at 
the impact you're having on people's lives. I mean, I told you about one. There's many more. So great story. I, thank you so much for sharing that. That's a good one. And I have to say, I love that city too. I am just getting to know it because my daughter is doing her residency there. So um, yeah, Iowa is fantastic. There's a lot to recommend it, you know, and especially in Des Moines and Iowa City. And then mm -hmm. my wife is from this very odd little town in Southeast Iowa, but it's also what so I would say a cultural gem sort of buried. And Iowa's got several of those. When I was traveling on the cruise ship all over the world, every time we'd be in a city for more than a day, I tried to wear one of my Iowa or Iowa State or Hawkeye type shirts and I would get stopped yeah. in Egypt, in Istanbul, in Russia, wearing that tiger hawk, which is the crest of the hawk. Yeah. Somebody inevitably would stop me, Copenhagen, Paris, and they go, are you from Iowa? And so, uh, so it's funny. Uh, it's a little state, but it seems to have an impact on people. So yeah, there you go. It does, I hope your daughter is enjoying it. Yeah. The, and the hospital is amazing. She's in pediatrics. Oh, great. So. Yeah, so similar to you a little bit. But okay, so now that we know your story um, and a little bit more about you and we trust you and you've done amazing things, can you share with the listeners those five steps? And yeah, I yeah. think if I remember correctly, and I'm taking notes, there was an order to them. Mm -hmm. There was one that you felt was more important. And the reason this is so important to me and my listeners is I want everyone to be healthy no matter what. I want my family, I want my friends, but I want my clients to be too. Right, and when right. you are going through a divorce, it is a really hard time. And my number one thing is take care of this, take care yes. of your well-being. And so any information like this that I can share to help them is going to just get them headed down the right path. Great. And that's a great message. It's really important. So I'll just sort of tell you my little spiel that I would normally work on with a patient in a situation like, and I, like I told you before we started recording, I've listened to three of your previous episodes. I'll tell you kind of what I would say, and I'm going to piggyback quickly off of what you said, which is I tell people when they're in the process of divorce or they've lost a job or a loved one has died, it's very much the same kind of loss. And if you look at the psychological literature, it's identical. So most of us are familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. And if you're not, you know what she said. That's the denial bargaining and all of that. What's funny, though, is that as we're going through that, we need to be really patient with ourselves. But uh, one of the things is we forget in the midst of crisis to do normal things to take care of ourselves. And here's the problem. Our body can't talk to us. So all it can do is make us feel bad. All right. And then what it hopes happens I know I'm anthropomorphizing our body, but this is evolution, right? So when our body makes us feel bad, it hopes we'll pay attention. And so what will happen is people come to me and they've had this big loss and they're feeling depressed or anxious or a combo of the things and they're not sleeping well, they're not exercising, they're not eating well, they're not showering, they're not shaving, they're not doing anything fun. And they go, well, I feel terrible. And I go, well, when was the last time you ate a vegetable? Well, it's been a week or two. Okay, so, so drink a glass of water, eat a vegetable, go for a walk outdoors every now and then. Like we get so focused on the minutia. And what happens is our body goes, wait, our routine is thrown off and it makes us feel bad. And we assume that I feel bad because I'm getting divorced. My mom died, my whatever happened. And so then we just keep driving forward and we don't. And then our body goes, well, he didn't do what I wanted him to do. So I'm make him feel worse and see if he can't. Well, now I need more medicine or now I so forth. So right. care is important. All right. Here gets into what I call the five things that, that you reference. So when I was in my first year of residency, I was very disheartened as a physician because I was following the textbook like 
start this medicine, go up and dose, add this medicine, do this. None of my patients were getting better. And that's disheartening for me as a scientist because I'm used to, if you follow this, like in chemistry, add this to this and this is gonna happen. It wasn't working, nobody was getting any better. And then I broadened my scope and realized none of my, none of my colleagues' patients were getting better either. Not just the residents, the, the attendings, the, the senior doctors, no one was getting any better. And I thought to myself, wait, I've been taught this medical model of psychiatry that they're still teaching, probably literally right this minute over at the hospital, they're teaching the medical students, oh, it's a chemical imbalance in your brain, and you just need the drugs, and it's all going to be fine. I'm here to tell you that's actually been disproven in numerous studies, and there's literature all about it, but that's not what we're taught. We're taught this biological model, take this pill and everything will be okay. So I decided, okay, um, I'm going to start looking at the research myself and figure out what is actually efficacious for treating people that are having, whether it be a definable mental illness or something like what your clients are going through, this sense of loss, call it depression, call it burnout, call it whatever you want. And it turns out there's really, really good literature out there. And it turns out there are five things that have consistently been shown in every study to be better than medicine. Okay. And so that's where I began to focus my studies. So if you look at my resume on our website, you know, I went back to school and I did, like, I got certified in nutrition, I got certified in exercise stuff, and I can't call myself a sleep expert because that requires a fellowship. I did lots of work with the sleep people when I was still at the university and all kinds of other things. And I realized that I needed to teach my patients better. What are these things we can do? Now, for anybody listening who's on psychiatric medicine. I'm not saying don't be on psychiatric medicine. Okay. And definitely don't stop it without talking to your physician. Okay. Just right away. Mm -hmm. but we're taught if I just find the right drug, everything's going to be okay. Now in 10 years of practice, and if you'll give me my last two years of medical school, 12 years of practice, I've seen that happen. Find the right pill. Everybody feels better, but it's much more the exception than the rule. Okay. So if you look at the actual research, and this is what I do for patients, this is the pie graph of how do I treat you? Okay. This little sliver right here is about 5%. It's actually about 2%, but I'm going to give it 5%, the bigger upper bound. That's medicine. So on its best day, medicine is going to be 5% of the treatment for most things, or there's obviously exceptions to that. All right. But then what's the other 95? Because that's way more efficacious. Imagine picking up a 25-pound barbell with one 5% of your finger, right? You might, might be able to move it a little bit. You're not going to be able to pick that sucker up. So what's the 95%? Where, how can I use the rest of my hand? That's the five things. So here's the metaphor I use with patients just to get everybody filled in. Imagine if you came to me with a broken arm and I went, here's a pain pill. You'll never feel that arm again. That's terrible advice, right? Yeah. I should lose my license. Now, at the same time, you'll meet people. It's, it's usually therapists who will say, psychiatric medicine is garbage. We should just throw it all away. No, 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 no. That's baby with the bathwater. Back to the 5%. So you come to me with a broken arm and I say, okay, the real treatment for a broken arm is casting, maybe surgery, physical therapy. Now, while we're doing that, I am going to give you some pain medicine to help you get through it to control symptoms. But the pill doesn't make the arm better, does it? It helps you get through the real treatment. That's psychiatric medicine. This is why I say, don't just sort of give up on the idea that medicine may help in the short term. What you really want to do is what I call the five things, okay? And so here are the five things. We're going to go okay. through them one at a time, all right? Hey, I just wanted to pop in here quick 
and I want to tell you about my Parenting Plan online course. It is for you if you are terrified that divorce is going to ruin your children. I'm here to assure you that you can co-parent really well together. And I have an online course that is going to walk you through a parenting plan. You will have a piece of your divorce done. If you want to work with a mediator, you can bring the paperwork in and that portion is complete. It's easy, affordable, quick, and effective. And it will be part of your divorce paperwork if you'd like it to, or you can just use it to co-parent well with another parent. It goes over all the things that you may not be thinking of when you're in the midst of an emotional time like divorce. So please go to lisakoski.com, check on my online courses, and sign up for the Parenting Plan course now because when parents work together, they can mitigate the damages caused by divorce to their children. So number one, the king, the queen, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world is therapy. Okay. So talk therapy beats medicine in every study ever done, not paid for by a drug company. All right. Therapy is absolutely for every single psychiatric disorder except pure ADHD with nothing else going on. And actually in kids that are younger than about 10, it's the best treatment for that too. But we're talking about adults here because 10-year-olds don't tend to get divorced. So therapy. And so people will often say to me, oh, I tried therapy. It doesn't work for me. I'm here to tell you with all the compassion in my heart, saying that therapy doesn't work is like saying food doesn't make me full. Okay. We didn't do the right kind and the right amount. And the number one predictor of how well do I do in therapy is rapport with the therapist. So how well do we get along? Even if you've tried three people, you haven't found the right person. All right. I see with our timing. So when I got out of the military and I went to medical school, I was having a little bit of trouble getting back into civilian life. Now, I didn't have PTSD. There's some things in civilian life after that many years that I just kind of was feeling weird about. So I went to the counseling center at Duke and they kept putting me with these therapists that were graduate students. They were younger than me. They had no life experience. They'd gone from kindergarten into graduate school. They had nothing to tell me. And so I kept firing therapists and going, listen, this isn't going to work. And they eventually stuck me with the guy that ran the clinic. He was older than me. He had been divorced once. And frankly, he kicked my butt a little bit. There's a military expression. He put me against the wall, which mm-hmm. means he, he kind of lined me up and said, hey, pay attention to this, whatever else. But he was like lock and key. It took us about two sessions and I was done. And it was so good for me as a young medical student because I thought kind of once you're in therapy, you're in therapy forever because you hear about Hollywood startups right. like I've been in therapy every day for 20 years. It doesn't have to be forever and ever and ever. If you can find the right fit, it's going to go like peanut butter over bread. I mean, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right. So therapy is absolutely the key. And I tell people, you know, keep looking for the right person. And it's the one time in life I would ask you not to be PC in your own mind. So when it comes to who do I want to be a therapist, if you rather have a man over a woman or a black person over a white person or a Jewish person over, fine. Now, the more parameters you put on it, the harder it's going to be to find that person. You may have to go to Chicago or New York or, you know, but now with telehealth, we actually Mm -hmm. can do a lot of that. So Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, that was unheard of, but now you can really find that lock and key, but keep going because that's going to be the best. And then therapy is not a passive thing. This is what everybody thinks. 
So for those of you that are my age or, you know, or older, you're going to remember the movie Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, and, and in comes Matt Damon. He sits down and he goes, let the healing begin. All right. So that's exactly what people think, that therapy is some passive thing where you sit there and the therapist imparts something upon you. That's not what modern therapy is about. Modern therapy, CBT, DBT, ACT, they're all about what is happening and what do we do about it. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, here is your homework. Here is what you need to do. And you have to practice. Okay. Just mm-hmm. like if you were going to play an instrument or learn to do anything else, you need to work with the therapist and, and really work on it. But I promise you that is absolutely number one. And even if it's not for very many sessions, fine. So number one of the five things, no question, hands down therapy. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Doing Divorce Different podcast. Connect with us at lisakoski.com and sign up for our newsletter.